0: 1 Samuel is in the first third of the Old Testament. It is actually well-placed. It is after the first five books of Moses and then the book of Joshua and Judges and Ruth. And so chronologically, it falls right there, right after the period of Judges and Ruth. It is one of the most significant books in the Old Testament. It tells of a time when Israel moved from the period of the Judges to the establishment of a kingdom. And it is made up in the main as a a story of three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. And we can divide this book up similarly, the first seven chapters focusing mainly on Samuel, us being introduced to Saul in chapter 8, and then in chapter 15 and on, dealing with the story of David. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word, we'll read through the first 20 verses of chapter 1. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Remethim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts! Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning for you alone have the words of life. Lord, we are thankful that you have given to us this text, this text that shows us the needs of your people, a text that shows us that you are ever-present and hear the prayers of your people. We ask, O Lord, that you would bless us and encourage us and that your word would take deep root in our heart. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier this morning, the weather and the weather forecast are perfect for our text. It's the kind of weather that we don't really enjoy, or at least when I was young and growing up, it was my least favorite weather forecast. It's the dreaded, partly cloudy. You don't know what to do. Will it get dark? Will it rain? Do I need an umbrella? Or maybe I need sunglasses because the sun will come out. Do I need long sleeves? Do I need short sleeves? It's hard to determine what will come about. That's a bit of what Hannah is experiencing here in the text this morning. As we start chapter 1, we see that Hannah is before or under a cloudy sky. The world seems dark and foreboding. The storm clouds threaten. But later on, at the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2, we see the sun break through. We see the glory of God shown to Hannah and that she knows the goodness that comes from God. So let us look this morning first at the cloudy sky and then second as the sun breaks through. Because if you are anything like me, we are both like Hannah. We both experience times when the Lord seems far from us, when the clouds threaten to overcome us, and we long to see the sun break through. Let's begin then by looking at Hannah's problem in the first eight verses. Now, this book is a very significant book in the Old Testament. It not only gives us a great deal of the history of what's going on in Israel. It is the establishment of the kingdom. And one of its main characters is one of the most beloved characters in all of Scripture, David. So it is significant here and interesting that this book begins in a very odd place. We might have expected such an important book to begin with a battle scene. Or perhaps to begin with a description of the leaders of Israel, or maybe even to start in the early days at the very beginning of David's life in his family. But instead, this book starts with a woman. A woman in pain and in need. We are introduced to an ordinary woman with a common problem. That is, that she cannot have a child. For many of us, we can immediately sympathize with her. We can immediately identify her issue. Either we have struggled with that ourselves, or we know someone close to us who has struggled not being able to have a child. And what the Lord is doing here in this book is deliberately setting the context for a grand account of the history of redemption with an ordinary situation and need. Now, we should not forget the greater context as well. Leading up to this point in time, the people of God have left Egypt and they have gone into the promised land and they have won a great victory and established themselves in the promised land. But along the way, they've lost their way. They have wasted the blessings that God has given to them. And as a result, times had been very hard for them in the times of the judges. There was oppression from foreign peoples. There was conflict. And we ask ourselves, why did this happen to Israel? And the book of Judges gives us a very succinct answer. Because there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The people of Israel had forgotten about God. They had taken God for granted. And now God is about to prepare the way for a king after his own heart to lead them. But let's go back now to our family. There is a certain man, the text begins in verse 1, a certain man named Elkanah. Now he's not a man of prominence. That's not the way that you describe a king or a chieftain or a judge, a certain man. But he lived in central Israel, in the land of Ephraim, just north of what would be called Jerusalem. He lived in a town called Ramah, which was not a famous town, not well known. It would become famous because of his son. But for now, he was an ordinary man living in an ordinary place. Now, he was from a priestly family. We learned this from 1 Chronicles 6, that he was of the Kohathites, who had charge of the ark and the instruments in the tabernacle. And he was a godly man. Look at verse 3. He used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice at Shiloh. Now, you have to understand, this made Elkanah countercultural. This is the kind of man who is living in a society not unlike ours, where people don't want to go to church. There's no advantage to go to church. There's no societal advantage to being a part of a church congregation. The only reason you go to church is to worship God and to hear from Him in His Word. Most of Israel was not going up to worship, but not Elkanah. He sacrificed his time, his money, and his effort because he felt it was critically important for him to worship the Lord. He was also a married man. And that takes us to the real person of interest here, because Elkanah is just the stage setter. He's married to a woman by the name of Hannah. But Hannah had no children, we are told. And so because of that, Elkanah had taken on a second wife to give him an heir, Paniah. Now, almost every time we read about polygamy, that is, more than one wife in the Bible, it's because there's a problem. Here there is no exception. There is a problem set up between Hannah and Paniah, and their names actually give us some insight into it. Hannah means gracious, and Panaya means prolific. So you can see immediately the tension in the household. Because Hannah was barren. And we begin by seeing her troubles. Now, Hannah did not have a horrible life. She had a husband who loved her. Her husband was of some means. She had a good reputation in the community. But not being able to bear children would have been a cause for great distress to an Israelite woman at this time. Having children was a source of pride for a woman. But even more than that, It was to be dishonored by God if you did not have children. Because you were not participating in the great promise that God had given to Abraham. You remember that promise in which the Lord promised Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed in his seed. That is, in his children. And so Israelite women could take... Comfort in knowing that they were participating in and helping to bring about the fulfillment of God's grand design through childbirth. She obviously would have thought that she let Elkanah down. Because the problem we see from the story is not Elkanah's. He's able to have children with Peninnah, But she was not able even to bear this problem alone because she was continually provoked by Paniah. Can you just imagine what it would be like to be in the midst of great pain only to have someone continually rubbing it in? We see this in verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her grievously for the purpose of irritating her. And it went on year by year. This is something that always would happen. One commentator in his sanctified imagination, describes the scene as the family prepares to go up to worship. The children are scurrying around and one of the children says to Peniah, well, why is Miss Hannah so sad? Well, she doesn't have any children. Yeah, that's right. Miss Hannah has no children at all. Right, Mommy? Nope, not a one. Not like us. We've got all, there's all of us, but Miss Hannah has no children at all. She has not been able to give your father a child. She's actually a bit of a failure in that. Could you imagine what that would be like? And have to take it? And be bitter? You see, Peniah had a habit of not only irritating Hannah, but of doing it at the most critical times. When the family is supposed to be going up... And worshiping the Lord, she uses it as an opportunity to turn the knife. Now, Elkanah saw this, and he understood it, and he loved Hannah. And that's one of the reasons that he gives her a double portion, we read here. But we also need to see not just Hannah's pain. We need to see how God is at work. Because after all, Hannah is not the first barren woman... She's not even the first barren woman that we come across in the scriptures. In fact, many of the most significant families in the Bible have barren wives. Think of Sarah and how long she waited for a child. If we do the math in the book of Genesis, we'll find that Rebecca waited 20 years to have a child. And then, of course, there is the story of Rachel. And the distress in her household because she could not have a child. There is the mother of Samson. And then later on, even in the New Testament, we have Elizabeth, the mother of John. This is something we see over and over again in the Bible. And it is actually linked to something. When we see this going on, often it is because God is about to unfold a new chapter in dealing with his people. Now, why is this? Why would God choose a barren woman to reveal the way that he deals with his people? It's because God makes our total inability his starting point for action. And nowhere is this more obvious in the fact that a woman cannot have a child and it seems impossible for her to have a child. And God brings it about. This says something for you and for me. We need to stop making our inability, our inability, a cause of hopelessness. We ought to stop focusing on our inability and start focusing on God's ability. You see, that is what God loves. He loves it when we are helpless, when we have no resources. When we're without any plan. And then he stretches out his mighty arm and acts. God delights in acting this way. Now this gives us an immediate connection with Hannah. You see, our tendency is to look at inability as a bad association with God. That is, that somehow we might express that there is some condemnation that comes down on us... From God, because we are unable. It's something that that we have done. It's our fault. And somehow, God is enjoying punishing us about it. But the truth is rather the opposite that is, that it is actually good news for Hannah that her childlessness is God's fault. The text tells us directly that the Lord had closed her womb. And what that means then is, is that God can deliver. God had closed the womb, which means that God can open the womb. It is up to God. You see, we should never count God out. That's what despair is all about. It is seeing our own helplessness and being hopeless because we think we cannot fix the situation. And God says to us, Amen. I will fix the situation. When we focus on ourselves, that's when we have no hope. We need to lift our eyes to the Lord. Because you see, God has willed our afflictions. That's a difficult thing to understand. That the afflictions that come upon us are a part of the plan of God. But the alternative is far worse. The alternative is that God is not in control, that we have no place to go, that there is no source for help. But if we see that God is the source of our afflictions, then we know that our afflictions are not purposeless. There is a reason for them. God has a purpose in them. Now, we may not know what that purpose is, today we may not even understand it on this side of glory but we have to understand as we look at our problems just as Hannah looked at hers that god is behind our afflictions and that he is the solution for them and so we turn to the next section of chapter 1 beginning at verse 9 where Hannah begins her prayer now Hannah was not without some comfort in her family. Her husband knew her pain and he was there for her. And this is something that we should understand as Christians, that there is value in just being there for someone who is going through a difficult time. To let them know they are loved. But Elkanah, he tells us that husbands in 1000 BC, are a lot like 21st century husbands. He's trying really hard to help. And so he says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Let me cheer you up. Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? Now, men, you do realize the right statement would have been, Hannah, You are worth more to me than ten sons. But he's a man. So we'll forgive him, but he's trying. So she lives with a husband who loves her. So she's not devoid of comfort. But what should Hannah do here now? Obviously, she is still concerned. She is still bitter. She is still sorrowful. Now, what many people do in this situation is they turn away from God. They say, God won't give me what I want. I'm not going to listen to him. I'm not going to worship him. I'm not going to think about him at all because he hasn't given me what I deserve. There are others who tell us to simply move past it. Don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Just just move past this difficulty. Life will get better. But really what Hannah does is she takes the proper course. She does not deny her bitterness or her sorrow. Look at verse 10. She is deeply distressed and she wept bitterly. What she does is she takes her pain to God. Now, how can she do this? She's in such pain. How can she take her pain to God? Well, it starts with the fact that she knows who God is. And we see this right from the very beginning of her prayer in verse 11. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant. Now, She addresses God as the Lord of hosts. Some translations will translate this, the Lord Almighty. It's the same concept. It is that God is not just powerful, but He is all powerful. He has armies at His disposal. He is able to do anything. And it is such a common name for God that, quite frankly, I was shocked that this is the first place in the Bible that this name is used. But you see why Hannah uses it. She's in pain. And she can't resolve her pain. And she can't solve her situation. So she goes to the one who is not just powerful, but who is all powerful. That makes sense to go and to pray to the Lord Almighty. You see, in the midst of her sorrow, she runs to God because God is the best place to go. Is this how you think? Do you seek out? Do you seek God when your times are tough? Or do you tend towards self-pity and self-reflection? Affliction is actually one of the ways that God calls us to himself. Hannah understood who God is, but Hannah also understood who she was, that she was The servant of God. Look at how she repeats this over and over again in verse 11. The affliction of your servant. Do not forget your servant. Give your servant a son. Over and over again she remembers that it is God who is important, not her. She's looking to the Lord. She's not saying, God, you must do this for me because look at how important I am. Look at how much I want to serve you. Look at how important and critical my life is. Instead, she downplays her own importance and looks on the Lord. And she does something else that I think only comes from someone who is smitten by grace and who looks to the Lord. Many of us would be tempted, I dare say, if we were in her situation praying to slip in at least one dart at Peniah. And Lord, I just hope you would humble Peniah. You know, maybe, Lord, you could give all of her kids the flu. Not, Not so that they die or anything, but just maybe so they throw up all over her, Lord. Just so that she's a little bit miserable and realizes how hard life is. Right? That would be our tendency. She doesn't do that. You see, she realizes that when you are someone who is looking for the mercy and grace of God, you cannot do it at the same time that you are looking for justice on others. She's focused completely on the Lord. What a good view this is for us. You see, we must remember that even on our best days, we are but humble servants who are sinners and who are deserving of the wrath of God. But there is something wonderful about this God of the Bible. He's not a distant, angry deity. He's not like the so-called pagan gods who must be bribed into doing something. No, the Lord is the God who longs for us to come to Him and to pour out our hearts to Him. And that's exactly what Hannah does. The scriptures tell us that when we do not have, what are we to do? We are to ask. The scriptures tell us that if anyone is sorrowful, what are they to do? They are to pray. That's what Hannah is doing. So Hannah pours out her heart and holds nothing back. Now, she so pours out her heart that the high priest Eli mistakes it for drunkenness. Now, there are two things here that we need to think about. First, we ought not to have in our mind a picture of Hannah sitting perfectly still with hands crossed, just mouthing words. No one would think that kind of person is drunk. No, she's crying and sobbing and breathing heavy and rocking back and forth and beating her breast. She is laying it all out before God. Now the second thing we see, and we'll see more of this in weeks to come, is that you're not exactly the best high priest if you can't tell the difference between somebody who's drunk and somebody who's praying. And this is borne out in the rest of chapter 2. But so Hannah says to Eli after he accuses her of hiding a whiskey bottle under the pew, he says... Why won't you you stop drinking? She says, I'm not drinking at all. I haven't had anything to drink. I'm just pouring out my soul before the Lord. I am not a worthless woman, the text says. But what you have to understand is the Hebrew behind that. A worthless woman in the Hebrew is a daughter of Baal. What she's saying is, I'm not like most of Israel that won't come here and worship. I'm not dabbling with pagan gods. I worship the Lord and I'm pouring my heart out before Him because He's the only one who has the answer. And she pours out her heart in a vow. She makes a vow that's a very serious thing. And it's very likely that she has in her mind Samson's mother who vowed if she had a child that no razor would touch his head, that he would be a Nazarite. And so Hannah makes the similar kind of vow. Now what does this mean for you and for me? What it means is when we have problems, the place to take them is the Lord. We don't need to clean ourselves up first. We don't need to be ready first. We need to go first to the Lord. Del Ralph Davis puts it this way. It's wonderful. He says, our Lord can handle our tears. It won't make him nervous or ill at ease if you unload your distress at his feet. That is the kind of God we need. A God that we can go before and unload our distress that he might resolve it. The second thing we see is the sun begins to break through on Hannah. And as it breaks through, she responds to the goodness of God. The power of prayer has had its effect, we see in verse 21. What happens here is we are focusing first and foremost on the petition that she is making. But verse 19 tells us that God has heard Hannah and He has granted her request and this changed her life forever. Later in chapter 2, we read that she has five other children. And it's important to believe, to understand that Hannah believed God answers prayer even before she could see it. You see, she rose up and her face was no longer sad. And she went... And she went into her husband and then she conceived. You see, she considered the matter resolved simply by taking it to God. And when God showed his goodness to her, because she had acted on the belief that God was good, God changed not only Hannah's life, but if you think about it, God changed all of human history. The world would never be the same. Because Hannah prayed to God. Why? Because God remembered her. Now, when, we, when the text tells us that God remembered her, it doesn't mean that God forgot her. It's not the kind of remembering we do. Oh, I remembered, I forgot to buy milk. No, it means that God has kept His covenant promise, that He knows that she needs Him, and He remembered and looked upon her. Now, there is a personal aspect to this. Because prayer changes us. We see this immediately in Hannah. We see her attitude changed. Because prayer makes it possible for us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put them onto God. Prayer is not just about changing the circumstances. Prayer is about changing us Before God, we cannot forget that even when God seems silent, He is a prayer hearing God. And so Hannah responds with thankfulness to the Lord. She has a son and she calls his name Samuel. Now it's unsure because of the way that Hebrew works, mostly without vowels exactly what that name means, but it either means the name of God or the asked for one. Either way, we have a picture of Hannah understanding exactly what's going on here and naming Samuel as an evidence and testimony of what God has done. She responds with thankfulness to God even in the name of her son. And then she responds with faithfulness to the Lord. She had made a vow, and she intends to keep it. She says to her husband, as soon as he is weaned, the first time I will go up to worship, I will give him over for the rest of his life. Now, how unmodern is this? We might imagine a 21st century Hannah saying something like, you know, if we set up a little worship room here in Rama." Maybe Samuel could serve the Lord here with us. Wouldn't that be just as good? Hannah does not try to find the loophole. That describes our modern society. That does not take vows like marriage. Does not take vows like membership vows to a church. Does not even take vows like ministers take at their ordination seriously as things to be kept. But Hannah does. She goes right up as soon as she is able, after her son is weaned. And she doesn't do anything that would go against this solemn vow. And she goes and listen to the order in which this is done. I will give to God because he has given to me. That is how it always is. She knows that it is from the goodness of God that she has received and that that goodness comes from God. Now, the English in verses 27 and 28 hide this a bit from us. She actually uses the verb to ask, that is to ask from God, four times in those verses. Now, your translations don't translate it that way because it makes for very poor English. But just so that you can get the effect of how she understands what she has received from God, this is a rough translation, again, from Dr. Davis. He says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord gave me my asking, which I asked from him. I have also given back what was asked to the Lord. All the days he lives, he is the one who is asked for the Lord. over and over again she reiterates this she knows that the blessing has come from the Lord the only reason Hannah had anything to give God is because he had given to her first now that should sound familiar that's a variation and a phrase that I use each and every time we take up the tithes and offerings. The only reason we are able to give anything to God is because He has so lavishly blessed us. God is the first, the initial, and the great giver. And Hannah is evidence of this. How do you respond to God's goodness? Is it something that you expect? And you get angry when it's late in coming? Or do you see God's goodness as undeserved and as a blessing that comes to you? This is what it means to respond to God's goodness. The last thing that we see here this morning is that Hannah begins also to see God's ways. At the beginning of chapter 2. There is more to this than simply an answered prayer. It is important for us to see that, but we must look for more. Hannah is looking at the character of God and the way He deals with His people. And so in doing that, she cannot help but break out in song. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. This is not unlike another woman that broke out in song, Mary. You see, she is so filled with gratitude and love for the Lord. And she sees that this is not just something for her. It is a picture. It is a way she can see who God is and his ways. And so she begins, like we all often do, with her own personal experience. Look at, in verse 1 of chapter 2, how many times the first person pronoun is used. My, 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 I. She's starting with her own experience. And what her own experience and her relationship with the Lord has taught her is, in verse 2, that there is no one holy like the Lord. That there is no other God but God. There is none beside you. There is no other place of refuge that we can go. There is no rock like our God. Does your prayer show you who God is? You see, she begins with that personal experience and then she moves on to the general way that the Lord rules. Hannah understands that what God has done for her is a reflection of how He is to all. He says, though, She says, those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. You see, God is about reversing the way of the world. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The way of the world is power and manipulation and grasping. And God, as He redeems this universe, is the one who turns that on its head. And those who are hungry are full. Those who thirst are satisfied. You see... There is this deliverance that God gives, and it is a deliverance that is wide in scope. In verses 9 and 10, she moves beyond the general world to God's kingdom in eternity. She says, He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. He will guard all who trust in Him. We sometimes don't see that as we look at the world. But it is the way that God is redeeming the world. The Lord will judge the world and He will set all things right, we see in verse 10. And Hannah is able to see this beyond her personal situation. And so she finishes with a reference to the Messiah. That is God's anointed in verse 10, whom the Lord will give to His people. This story is of great practical value to you and me. It teaches us how to pray. It teaches us how to bear up under affliction. But it is also of great theological and spiritual value. We begin to see a picture of the king to come, David. But he, in turn, is just a figure of the Messiah to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the best example of how God hears people's cries. How God delivers them from their pain and evil. And how he establishes their blessings. This is done through the work of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. We are never hopeless when we know the Lord Jesus Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this story this morning. The story of a woman in pain and hurt. And we thank you that her story helps us to look to you. Lord, point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see his grace and his mercy. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.